five, four, three, two, one. I'm John Miglosh for the WDMA. And today is our 1,000th show. 1,000 YouTube video. So if you search for Miglosh Marketing on YouTube, you will find, I think, yesterday was 999, so today is 1,000. And, you know, that's, you know, hoopy. That's about what it deserves. <clears throat> Except that, you know, I, I, I've seen a lot of really good YouTube people go about two dozen videos and then decide it was too much work. I approached it the exact opposite way. I decided how to make it less work and make sure I stayed with it. That's an orthodox, that's an orthodox principle. Better to do a little for a long time than it is to do a lot for a short time, I guess. Anyway, I enjoy doing it and I enjoy the comments I get and I've uh, connected with a lot of nice people and I hope you enjoy it too. Joe Rogan said not much happened until he hit a thousand, a thousand uh, podcasts. Uh, I, I'm right on your heels, Joe. You know, he's got like 10,000 now. I mean, it's like, that's that's uh, incredible. That's like 30 years worth of content. Um, it's taken me three and a half years to get this far, and uh, I always laugh when I get YouTube or I get uh, LinkedIn people sending me things. You, we can help you make a video for your company. <laughs> it's like how many videos have you made? <laughs> anyway, uh, let's get over to the news. And uh, in honor of the thousand videos, I got the scroll thingy going. We're going to have a meetup on uh, next week, a week from Thursday, um, and so we'll be putting that up. It is actually, there's there's some stuff up there uh, right now on WDMA, so you can, we'll put that up there. But right now I put I put a, a scroller across the bottom saying it's thousandth video. And since one of my main um, muses is Tom Fishburn, we'll start off with him. Okay, the future of the metaverse. I can't wait to experience the whole new internet when the metaverse is finally here. And this is a uh, a 3D helmet, you know, <laughs> a 3D viewer. And, uh, you know, it's so funny because I remember those tick, 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 tick things. I don't know if you ever saw them when you were kids. But we had them. My, my, my wife, no, not my wife, my mom and my dad. Somebody shot stereo views of their wedding. I think we still have them. I don't think there's any way to view them. We should put them on the internet. But their but their stereoscope, uh, you know. So there was three dimensional cameras, uh, even in the 50s. Um, but anyway, so what does he see when he puts on the helmet? Blowout sale, 40% off. I just noticed I have a Lens End, a Lens End over here. They do a nice cover. And down in the corner. Oops, corner, 40% off, right there. So, catalogs are right up to date with the Metaverse. 40% off, buy now, want more content? Subscribe. Our privacy policy has changed, except we share third data with third parties, except, you know, that's how we pay for all this stuff. So, Tom is basically saying it's not going to be that much different than it already is. No one knows exactly what form the Internet of the future will take. But the frustrations of current internet won't automatically go away with new technology. <clears throat> Jane Lactor, head of growth at Group M, says it's going to be big and niche at the same time. That make, yeah, big and niche at the same time. Niche in that it, it's a virtual experience in virtual worlds. Big in that you can have an entire generation who, in a decade, are going to be virtual first consumers. 
In other words, they want to see how it fits in the virtual world rather than in the real world. I just don't see that coming. But I'm kind of a Luddite. I didn't see the point of color screens, <laughs> color monitors for computers. I thought black and white was just ducky. And, you know, one of the one of the last times I bought a 100% brand new top of the line computer, it was it was some kind of compact and it looked about the size of I don't know what, a bread box, I guess. And it kind of folded up like this and stuff and it was orange on black. <clears throat> Snazzy, but it wasn't long before the color came on and I had to get that. So if consumers of the future will be virtual first, the metaverse of the future is currently being designed by marketers first, not consumers first. <laughs> the ad formats, brand experiences, and social commerce are being worked out quicker than the value proposition for actual people. Now, I should say in retrospect that there were a lot of people, you know, IBM, the head of IBM, and when uh, Univac or whatever was, was, you know, one of the few big computers in the world, said, I see a market for at least a dozen computers in the world or something like that. <clears throat> Never anticipated that we'd all be carrying them around in our pockets. So if brands paper the metaverse with ads, they'll have blown it. The last thing a brand wants to do is create a bad experience on one of these metaverse platforms and just be there as an advertiser. See, again, if you think about what I had to say yesterday about the, or Friday about the value of advertising and the value of marketing, <clears throat> you know, all of a sudden we have to have not only purpose, but we have to have, I don't know what, <laughs> I don't know what, uh, is it Jane? I don't know what Jane is actually saying here. Um, the rules of engagement haven't changed when it comes to the, nece the necessity to create value for consumers. In this territory, it's more important than anywhere else. And again, I don't understand why it's more important there than anywhere else. <clears throat> but I guess if it hasn't been defined yet, marketers can make any claim they want. Virtual reality marketing, March 2016. This is a long time ago when this was just around the corner. In this virtual world, marketers can pretend that consumers who ignore their brands in real life will somehow want to engage with them in virtual reality. Yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> and brand experience in the metaverse, January 2022. Welcome to the brand experience in the metaverse. I'm sure consumers will show up any minute now. Yeah, so dive in. That's what they say. Okay, so here's the real article, <clears throat> or here's an article by Brian Cooley about Jane. Uh, there's Jane. Jane Latcher, head of Group M Growth. She looks like she knows the answers to everything. No offense, Jane. The floodgates opened on January 1st. All of a sudden, January 1st was it, even though Fishburne was writing about it in 2020, in 2016. Uh <clears throat> Head of growth for one of the largest media agencies in the world, Ford, Google, Coca-Cola, and Unilever are among its clients. So they have an, she has an interest in talking this up. Uh, it's always, you know, now that I've got over 40 years in marketing consulting, you, you, you basically see that the people that make the most money from the new technology are the people that are most mm, adamant that the new technology is going to change everything. And then in retrospect... As Ritson always points out, people don't change that much, okay? But um, every 50th, no, every fifth email or inquiry from brands is, what's the metaverse and do I need to be there? 
And the answer is you need to make a profit. We'll get to that next. It's going to be big and niche at the same time, says La says Latcher. Um, but she says she's watching to see how quickly VR headgear is accepted by the next generation. Now, I did do a VR headgear experience of a, flying a jet a jet fighter, and I know enough about flying to take the thing off, launch it up straight in the air, and do a couple of barrel rolls. That's like, which I almost immediately got sick. So it is real, because <laughs> I probably would have been sick in the real world, but it isn't necessarily pleasant. <laughs> and I did get in trouble when I downloaded Pokemon Go and started walking into bushes and things, trying to hit those little demons. Uh, so anyway, here's the entire article. Um, how are you going to measure it longer term? It's going to be more emotional. So she's already saying you won't be able to measure it, but it's going to be big. That sounds like marketing to me. Somebody's marketing the marketing. Once somebody asked me, what's all this database marketing? I said, we're trying to sell big boxes to, to companies with lots of money. They didn't like that answer. Okay, here's something from Mark Ritson. <clears throat> Volkswagen is right to put profit before sales. There are two paths that can follow. One leads to sales while the other points to profitability. And the latter is inevitably the right one to choose. Okay, that's from Mark Ritson. But, and he does say, he's, and then he tells the story of Volkswagen. Mark Winterkorn is a man with a lot of explaining to do. Um, he's widely considered the person ultimately responsible for Dieselgate. And if you don't remember, Dieselgate was where Volkswagen fixed their cars so that they would send wonderful, positive passing data to someone checking their emissions. <laughs> when someone plugged the little device in to check the emissions, the car knew that it was getting spied on and it would give them the right answer, whether or not it would pass emissions. What everybody leaves out about Dieselgate was that the emission standards in the United States were deliberately written to keep Volkswagen and other European diesel manufacturers out of America. They had tweaks in them based on the gasoline that, or the diesel fuel that we sell that has higher particulates. And so they screened it. The, 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 the diesel fuel was better in, in Europe, so the cars didn't have to be tuned to specially meet our standards and weren't. They were made to go far on a little bit of gas. And lo and behold, the diesel cars, here's the part that's really shocking. The little diesel Volkswagens would go 80 miles per gallon on a gallon of diesel. 80. 80. What does a Prius do? 50. Okay. What does, a, what does my car do? 30. But my car passes emissions, right? But my car, for every... For, <laughs> For every tank of gas, I'm putting two and a half times more, more CO2 and more gunk in the atmosphere just because I have to imperfectly burn much more gas than the little diesels that Germany wanted to put into the United States. We would have all been better off. But the manufacturers in the United States didn't want to compete with Volkswagen who'd been doing diesels for decades. Try saying that fast. Okay? So Dieselgate was a way for 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 Volkswagen to get their cars into America, their good cars, right? Get them into America in spite of the loopy rules that the American car makers had done to keep them out. 
and they saved emissions and they saved gas. But instead, we're going with electric cars. It's got the United States completely on the wrong path, which, of course, we've been on for since the cart rules back in the 60s. We, we write the rules to favor our own manufacturers, not the consumer. That's how we got rid of the, the, the station wagon. In Europe, you go over there and you see all these little cars, little hatchbacks and station wagons that will hold eight people and our, our little sedans. But over here, we all have big SUVs that get about 15 miles per gallon. Why? Because we wrote the cart rules and eliminated the station wagon. We had a, little, we had a couple of little station wagons. We had one, but it, again, seated eight people in a little car that was no bigger than a sedan. But it had the highest or the lowest gas mileage of anybody in the Chevy fleet of sedans. So the cart rules killed it. And now we all got everybody driving SUVs that don't even hold eight people. Most of them hold six at that, at best, or four. Anyway, sorry, I shouldn't have gone off on Dieselgate, but Volkswagen was right, but we should have bought their stock. Anyway, so Martin decided that Volkswagen was going to be the biggest car manufacturer on the planet, okay? And by that, he meant the most cars shipped, okay? Uh, right at that point, Toyota was the highest. Okay, but anyway, he doubled production from 6 million cars a year to 11 million by 2016, and they did actually surpass Toyota two years ahead of schedule. But, and they did it partly by buying Audi and Skoda and Bentley and Lamborghini and Porsche and by coming out with many, many more models aimed at more consumers in more markets than ever before, up to 60 new models a year. Okay, they're good at that. Okay, but here's the question. Was it more profitable? Sales are usually the ultimate corporate measure of success. Okay, not just at VW, but uh, he said he said that it's a dumb objective. It usually proves to be completely dumb. The sales, of course, are important, but they are not the lifeblood of a company. Profit is. Okay, granted, to some degree, operating profit is a function of sales volume. You get profits. One way you get profits is economies of scale, which this does. Okay, but, but before you make strategic positions, look for a, a second signpost, the one pointing to profitability, and often they point in different directions. That's what that's what Ritson is saying. Okay, what you do to make a profit and what you do to increase sales are different. I actually built a business simulation for Catalog Age magazine and the Catalog University. And we made it so that the, the president of the company or the CEO or the owner wanted to grow sales. He wanted to grow no matter what. And what was funny is we had some accounting people in there for some reason. And immediately when the first year wasn't profitable, which it wasn't going to be because he was dumping a lot of money into growth, uh, we made it so you couldn't make a profit the first year. They would start cutting everything. They would start cutting the telesales people, they would start cutting the, the, the inventory on the shelf. It, they tried to cut back everything, but he was still mailing more and ended up running out of everything and going under pretty much. Um, so they are most of the time mutually exclusive, and most of the time your accounting people will start cutting costs when sales go down. And I heard one of the big 
consultants in the catalog industry say you can't grow both sales and profits at the same time, which is not true. I've done it many times, many, many times. We change the valuation of companies. That's part of what marketing can do. Okay, but Mark goes on to talk about Apple. He talks about his anecdotal stories about uh, he had, he was working with a company and the CMO said, what kind of profits are they doing on their billion? He just come back from a party where they celebrated their billion sale or their billion dollar uh, sales milestone. It's a little bit like doing a thousand videos on YouTube. What does it get you? Well, I don't know. Call me up. Let's work together. At least you know I'm alive. I mean, what's one guy said? Well, at least when you do your daily videos, I know you're alive every day. So it was proof of growth. Okay. Now he contrasts Volkswagen with Apple. They only ship 12% of uh, of I, the iPhones are only represent 20 12% of the phone market shipments, but they represent 40% of the global sales, and they represent 75% of global total handset profits. And he's got nifty graphs, which is a little rare for Mark. Okay, so a Apple is black. That's This is the black. Okay, it's hard to see it. It's, go it's moping along in the middle. Here's sales. Apple in sales is clearly the leader. Here's profits. Way up above everybody else. Okay, the blue one is second. What's the blue one? Samsung, that's what I figured. <clears throat> okay, way above everybody else. And Mark says that's the main thing. That's what you want. <clears throat> and uh, this was really interesting. He talked then about the uh, AirPods. And this was, in this was interesting because I didn't realize AirPods made had this much in sales. I mean, it's a, it's a headset for heaven's sakes. But anyway, people really like the AirPods, I, apparently. Uh, $23 billion in sales in AirPods compared to Tesla, compared to Netflix, Compared to Adobe, Uber, NVIDIA, AM, AMD, Spotify, Twitter, you know, anyway, lots of big companies you think of as really great. So here's the, Air, the AirPods. <clears throat> now, they're second in this group of all these flashy companies, but what are they in margin? Thanks to gross margin of around 60%, Apple's purported $23 billion in revenues from AirPods delivered around 13 billion in actually that's gross profit not net profit but I'm just you know showing you that I know some some accounting it's not quite the same as operating profits and Ritson agrees um, but anyway uh, if you combine the profit performance of the other companies in the chart it would be roughly equal to that generated by airpods if you add all 11 of them together okay? So what's he saying? The key is not growth. It's uh, the key target is not growth. The, 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 VFW, the, the VFW, the VW's group CFO told Financial Times last week. Yeah. What happens is when all you get is growth, then you get rid of the you get a new CFO and get rid of the CMO. OK, but Mark says the key is to kill off the stuff that's less profitable. And he's not saying unprofitable that's easy any idiot can do that he says you got to take the things that are profitable but not that profitable okay excellent idea he remembers working with three brands in london and uh the head of the least profitable said we're generating eight hundred thousand pounds of profit a year 
uh, and the company be nuts to walk away from that. And he said, but what if I gave your marketing budget, sales team, and uh, to either of these other two divisions? They'd be making a lot more than 800,000 pounds. Isn't that right, gents? And they said, yes. That's right, said one of them, in almost a whisper. He didn't want to cause any trouble. Okay, so companies following the profit signpost ultimately find themselves in a much better place than the ones still racing down the volume path. And what this usually sets up is a war between the CFO and the CMO, where the CFO basically says, I don't think your budget is cutting it, <laughs> the marketing budget, and basically cuts the budget and says, make do more with less, and may also cut the the inventory on hand leading to the uh, logistics crisis that we're in right now, uh, not having enough merchandise to ship, and cuts in all kinds of places that matter, okay? <laughs> That's kind of what happens. And there's always this war. If I had more money, I'd have more sales, okay, to prove it. But oftentimes, like Procter & Gamble, when they cut 40% out of their digital budget, sales went up. So oftentimes the CFO is right. Now, is Mark right? That's a question. And the question is, um, yes, you should kill. You can learn to kill, not create. Learn to kill before you create. And he talks about he talks about a company that the best guy he ever worked with said that you had to you had to if you had a great idea for a new product you had to decide which old products get get rid of. First, he congratulated the marketer on such an innovative new product and gloried at its likely impact. Then he asked for the product SKUs in the portfolio that would be cut to make room for the new launches. <clears throat> right. I got a comment here. It's a high sales number because everyone loses them. I don't get it. Anyway, <clears throat> now I'm here to tell you, you know, I got hired by General Housewares who owned uh, a Calphalon brand of, of cookware and uh, their flagship brand was Chicago Cutlery. And one of the reasons I got hired was because uh, one of the main um, retail chains they sold to declared bankruptcy, which means that basically a judge lets the retailer keep all the all the merchandise that they bought from you and pay you 10 cents on the dollar. It's a great ripoff, and it's how retailers really cash in in bad times. <laughs> and Chicago Cutlery people said, we're kind of sick of this. We'd like to sell direct. And they were putting the 800 number, stamping it on the bottoms of these cookware, and they were doing about $100,000 a month just doing that, which is pretty great, you know, not telling anybody, just saying you could buy, you know, if you need another item or you have a complaint or whatever, just call this number. A lot of people do that. But then they had a little catalog, and they, were, and they wanted a bigger one. They wanted to look like uh, Williams-Sonoma. And so I put together a pro forma, and I showed how they could get to $5 million in sales in five years, or maybe it was 10 million in five years, and profitably, profitable the whole way, because I had Mark's belief that profit was essential to business. And they looked at it at the bottom line and they said, well, this doesn't do us any good. If one retailer gets mad because we're going direct and cuts us off, this won't even make up the difference. See, I didn't understand their position. I only understood theoretically that profit was more important than sales. We also, we don't have to look very far in history to find another example, great example. 
You know, everybody used to laugh at Amazon. Jeff Bezos would get up at the board meetings and say, or at this shareholders meetings and say, it's a new world. Profit doesn't matter. It sounds a little like the first, the first cartoon we did. It's a new world. Profit doesn't matter, right? We just want growth, 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 growth. We're going to take over the internet. And I don't know how many years they went, six, seven, eight years or something without any profits. Bezos would just plow it back into warehouses and stuff. Guess what? Bezos won. It's kind of over. You know, I, I mean, Amazon's got a lot of challenges, but boy, I'll tell you. When I talk to people out in the real world, they go, yeah, they don't always do it right, but, you know, it's so easy. So if the metaverse can do that, I doubt it, because what's the interface with a viewer? Not much. Move your hands. Um, very, very limited. Very, very limited user interface when you want to buy something. It's going to have to be really tricky. I'm not saying you can't do it, but it's going to be tricky. Um, and if anyone does it, it's probably going to be Amazon. Because they have the sales and they have the profits now. Because they've got 10% of retail sales in just the internet. Anyway, so don't always assume that sales is irrelevant and profit is everything. Um, I had a boss who was on a board of a bank. And he said it would be so funny because, you know, somebody would come in who had gone bankrupt several times and say, I want a big loan for this big project. And I'll pay you double the market interest. And all the bankers go, ooh-wee, double the interest. <laughs> and Norm, my friend Norm, would say, what if he doesn't pay? What good is it then? You know, and Norm would say, we, we, we got in trouble because we were taking all these orders. And the, the, we used to give credit back in those days. It was B2B. And the credit checkers were hiding the orders in a drawer because they couldn't credit check them fast enough. Because Norm would say, an order that isn't paying is not an order. And I tried to explain to Norm how, you know, a 1% loss rate might be acceptable if it doubles your sales. And so we would have those fights. But the point is, is that it's a trade-off most of the time. Now, we have actually doubled companies in size and sales and increased the margin at the same time. It's hard. You have to basically, you have to have an insight. And the modeling can give you an insight if you don't buy the cheap stuff from the big companies that just say, oh, trust us, this is going to be a great model. And it does do well, but you don't get any insight from it. Insight is what gives you profit and, and growth. Have a great day. Like and share. I went a little long today, which I always do with Ritson because he riles me up. And, and happy 1,000th video on YouTube for whatever that will get me. Bye-bye. For those of you who watched to the end, congratulations. I hope you did it at double speed.